I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll be releasing a series of special episodes to help you understand the background to this crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. In late January, we spoke to John Luff, former NATO representative in Moscow and now an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia programme at Chatham House. He rejoins us today to update us on the current state of play in NATO, the likely trajectory for Western powers' role in this conflict and the long-term implications for the global order. John, good evening. Good evening. John, we spoke about a month ago and we were talking about whether or not Vladimir Putin would make the tragic error of invading Ukraine. That discussion is now over. A full-scale invasion is underway. And the question now is really how NATO should respond. As a former NATO official and someone who's been looking at these issues for decades, what are your uh, thoughts on that question? Well, my immediate thoughts are that this operation is not playing out the way the Russians expected. Yeah, They thought the Blitzkrieg would would work. They get to Kiev quickly. They'd be able to decapitate the leadership of the country and then probably install you know, some leadership to, to their taste, although I was always sceptical about how they might do that. They seem to have fatally misread Ukraine in two respects. Firstly, they've underestimated its military capability. And secondly, I think they have completely failed to understand how much Ukraine has changed over the last 30 years. This is a country where there are effectively two generations of people who have been born into freedom. And Ukrainians have shown that they are resolutely behind their country and determined to defend it. And the, I think the, the heroism which we've seen in, in, in recent days is, is just quite extraordinary. And not just that, they've got behind a president who has found his voice at uh, a most unexpected moment. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's, it's uh, extraordinary to think that there, not so long ago, President Zelensky was seen as a bit of a lightweight, obviously his background in light entertainment and so on, uh, and, and arguments about whether he was too close to certain major oligarchs. But undoubtedly, as a wartime leader, uh, his ability to inspire the ordinary Ukrainians is, is, is remarkable. It's quite extraordinary. So if you're looking at this from outside, you, you, you have to think, what are the Russians going to do next? Are they going to get into, you know, sort of Syria or Chechnya scenario and just shell the major cities, force people underground and ultimately compel Zelensky to put up the, the, the white flag? Are they going to try and do that? Because that's fraught with enormous risks. That this could take a long time. The you know, the increased international opprobrium, the the further tightening of um, sanctions, the risk of morale on the Russian side um, falling, and I think there are already some indications that the performance of the armed forces have been nothing like uh, what it was advertised uh, to be. You know, to 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 Putin and indeed to the outside world. Yeah. And then I think you would, you would have an increased risk that the system in, in Russia will become destabilized. Yeah. So that's not, not an option. Uh, retreat doesn't look like an option either. No. Um, so, you know, 
Putin and his associates look to be really stuck. Um, I was just uh, before we, we started looking at the news, and it appears the Russians have signaled that they accept that Zelensky is a legitimate leader of Ukraine. And that's already you know, a, a significant concession on their part. So are they going to try and negotiate their, ways, their way out of this and say to Zelensky, we accept you as a leader, and since you're the leader, you're the one who needs to sign on the dotted line. So please tell us that you're never going to join NATO. And uh, that would create, a, I think, an interesting problem uh, for Zelensky. And I sort of hesitate to offer a view on uh, how he and his advisors would you know, manage, manage that situation. But it really does look as though if they hold out for just a little bit longer, then things really might start to happen in Russia itself. I'd like to talk about that in a moment. Before we get there, though, uh, just to talk a bit about the Ukrainian military. And, and as you've noted, you know, they, they are definitely performing at a much higher level than the Russians had expected. Uh, lots of us will remember 2014 when, um, to be blunt, the, the Ukrainian military didn't appear able to put up much of a uh, fight to stop the Russians in their initial advance. Yes, they held them to a certain line in in Donbass. Um, so that transformation of the Ukrainian military has, of course, to some extent, been helped by NATO countries. We know that there have been training missions. Um, without at all uh, buying into sort of Putin's deranged attacks on Ukraine, is this an example, actually, of NATO successfully uh, helping Ukraine build its own capacity and its ability to secure itself? It may be too, too early to, to judge. I mean, I'm sort of reminded of the fact that in the in the late 1990s and the sort of early naughty years, there was a lot going on in terms of defence cooperation with NATO and particularly with the UK. Yeah. And it, it was talked up as being extensive. There appeared to be a lot going on. But when you know push came to a shove in 20, 2014, there didn't seem to be anything there at all. Now, that's partly, of course, because the Russians succeeded in penetrating the um, the defence establishment in Ukraine, as well as the security services, and essentially paralysed them. Yeah, but you know, if you look below the hood, um, that there didn't seem to be a lot of interoperability with NATO, for example, and it, it was obviously a, a serious rebuilding operation after 2014. And and what military force was deployed to to fight in the southeast of the country, and a lot of that came from volunteers. Yeah. Uh, and we, we saw again, you know, the strength of Ukrainian society much, um, much underestimated. So I, I would have thought that, yes, the, the Russian side did underestimate the Ukrainians, but they also overestimated their ability to fight in these circumstances. That appears to have been a, you know, a crucial misjudgment. And, you know, to be fair, there are, there are lots of, uh, uh, well, no shortage of Western observers who, you know, felt that the Russian military had been really successfully modernized, that it's shown its, um, its combat skills in Syria, for example, was really a force to be reckoned with. But, you know, you look at that 40 kilometer column of vehicles uh, advancing uh, to Kiev or supposedly advancing yeah. that seem to have run out of food and fuel. Yeah, you know, some, something is not working as it should, and you know there are suspicions that actually the military are not pursuing this campaign with, you know, great enthusiasm. Yeah, 
Yeah. And there are morale problems, you know, the, the lowest level. Um, the Ukrainians have been doing an absolutely brilliant job producing, you know, video material that they, they put onto Russian social media, showing prisoners of war, you know, them calling home, explaining what's happened to them, sometimes uh, revealing, you know, that they, they were sent out there and thought they were going on an exercise, then told they were crossing the border, but had really no idea what was going on. But we're told bluntly if they didn't obey the order, then they would be, you know, betraying the motherland and they would spend, you know, 25 years in jail. Yeah. So it, it looks as though there are all sorts of problems on the Russian side. But let's let's not take any, anything away, I think, from the Ukrainians. The defender always has the advantage in terms yeah. of morale, and, and Russian yeah. military doctrine would be clear about that. So they, they would have to measure themselves, you know, against the Ukrainians uh, and then look to to see how they would erode that advantage. But you would expect with their superior firepower that they they would be able to negate that the advantage of the defender. But if they were trying to achieve surprise, I mean, that, that's just been a, a terrible failure on their part. So they're now having to resort to plan B, which is, you know, the longer campaign, attrition, um, inflicting damage, destruction, and, and of course, a large number of civilian deaths. So that's not, you know, easily sustainable. But I think, you know, putting my NATO hat on, what I would be, uh, if I was still there, I'd be very worried about would be if NATO countries are going to, to going to do as they say and supply Ukraine with more defensive equipment, you know, ammunition, that's got to get over the border. It's probably going to come over the border in Poland. Well, you know, how's that equipment then ultimately going to be delivered? And presumably, Russian armed forces are going to look at the Polish border very closely, yeah. and they're going to try and deter those deliveries. Yeah. So, you know, do we get into uh, a situation where there might be some incident on the border, there might be a missile that lands on the wrong side of the border? Uh, I think there's a lot of capacity for danger there. Yeah. I'd like to explore that a little and in the context of the sort of wider questions about escalation. As we know, you know, Ukraine clearly mounting an in- incredibly effective defence and they've started uh, fairly consistently, I think, their, their, their senior figures, you know, ministers, presidents and, and others talking about the no-fly zone. It is not, as far as I can see, likely... NATO countries are going to get involved in in that way. But as you've said, there are other ways in which NATO is already involved. And the risk then of either unexpected or uncontrolled escalation. So what is your perception, one, on how far NATO can go without risking what would be a full-scale conflict between NATO and Russia, which, you know, the, the ramifications of which are limitless, really, and then also uh, what you think is likely on the Russian side, if, if we can sort of try to get inside their heads. Okay, in terms of how far NATO can go, I mean, the alliance has signaled that it's not going to, going to get involved on the ground. And I would expect member states to, to meet their commitments in terms of the supplies of um, equipment. It's not just, you know, anti-tank missiles or ammunition that Ukrainians need, uh, you know, acute shortage of bulletproof vests, helmets, you know, just very, very simple things. And it's going to be interesting to see whether we we can actually find those in in sufficient numbers. And, uh, you know, it's well known that, you know, Germany made this sort of pathetic, you know, commitment to supply 5,000 helmets. But apparently for the German side, you know, they didn't have much else to offer. Right. So, you know, where is it going to come from? Uh, But I, I, 
I'm reasonably sure that we're going to you know, raise our commitments and, and deliver much more. A no-fly zone is is not going to work. NATO countries have made that uh, made that clear. And um, Ben Wallace, the the British Defence Minister, I heard him on the radio this morning saying quite correctly that you know, for, for for Russian artillery that shelling. Kiev, for example, oh, sorry, excuse me, Kharkiv, yeah. on the other side of the border, a no-fly zone doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. No. So, you know, we have to be practical. Yeah. But I, I would sort of turn it around and say that, that we are prosecuting our own form of hybrid warfare now because we have unleashed economic war. Yes. And this is going to have a devastating effect if the, these sanctions stay in place and they may even be ramped up. I think Russian economists are in no doubt that over the coming months, this is going to have a calamitous effect on the Russian economy. We've got a weapon here that the Russians have not had to deal with in the past, and they are vulnerable despite you know, all their efforts to to sort of build resilience. You know, when you you have foreign currency reserves of six hundred and thirty billion, people think, well, that's fantastic, but then suddenly half of them are not accessible. Yeah, and people are talking about reducing their dependence on your oil and gas. Then then things really start happening. Quite apart from the fact of the, you know, the the currency being put under pressure, inflation growing, living standards uh, falling even further, people struggling, the middle classes particularly to buy, you know, their favourite pasta or getting, you know, the good medicines, uh, unable to go on holiday. Yeah, you know, this is a kind of return. I think that many Russian commentators are saying, "Oh, we're going back to the days of the Soviet Union." Yeah, you know, on steroids. Yeah. So we are deploying instruments now that we've not used in the past and the effects of which are one level predictable they're going to cause pain but what is the political result going to be and is it going going to in fact contribute to you know acceleration of um, I think the fall of the the Putin regime which I think has began some time ago but has been in sort of slow motion but I mean this disaster in Ukraine in my view, can can only ultimately contribute to Putin leaving office, you know, earlier than many people anticipated, and it could even cause the entire system to come down. Yeah. So let's talk about that a bit more. We, as you've spelled out, the the economic impact of this is devastating. You know, over recent years, there have been sizable moments of protest against Putin, which are then, of course, quickly crushed and, and pushed back down, but He's clearly made a terrible miscalculation. He's done it in a way that for many Russians will be inexplicable because they they themselves have their own personal connections to Ukraine. They, they don't see Ukraine as some kind of Nazi aggressor state. Um, so w- what do we think might be uh, the political ramifications for Putin and Putinism, if, if, if we can call it that? This is the big question to which we we really have no answer at the moment. It, it looks as though you know public attitudes uh, in, in in Russia are sort of slowly perhaps catching up with the reality of what's happening. You know, we hear isolated reports that uh, people in some of the key ministries um, are just dismayed, had no idea that things could go this go this far. And in, instinctively understand that Russia is going to experience, you know, a, a long period of international isolation. Yeah. That these crippling economic measures are there, and effectively, the the leadership has betrayed the national interest. Yeah. So, on the on the Russian side, I would expect there to be a growing consciousness that 
Russia has entered at a quagmire that has led to an embarrassing defeat. And no amount of state propaganda is going to cover up this fact, particularly when the, you know, the news gets back from prisoners of war, others who participated in this campaign, that it was not as advertised. Yeah. And that, that is going to have an enormous effect. I mean, at the moment, you, you have to recognize that the Russian media are not even able to use the word war to describe what's going on in Russia. So they've re- resorted to all these sort of euphemisms. I listened to an interview with somebody this afternoon uh, talking about the, the, the effects on the economy from this non-war. <laughs> it, it's just an absolutely sort of farcical, uh, <laughs> farcical sit- situation. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the truth de- does tend to, to come out in the end. Yeah, but at the same time, let, let's not assume this is going to happen very quickly. You know, the, those people in um, senior positions in the key ministries, uh, in the in the intelligence services, and it does appear that the foreign intelligence service tried to tell Putin that this wasn't a good idea. Yeah, but you know, even to go for the blitzkrieg, but it was you know badly received. Hence, uh, why Putin chose to humiliate the the, the head of the, the foreign intelligence service, uh, Sergei Narishkin, and and sort of reduce him to a blubbering wreck, you know, at the lectern at that yeah. famous uh, Security Council meeting. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting, from my view, point of view, to see whether people, you know, in those key positions suddenly have the courage to actually speak the truth to Putin and say, I told you, we told you that this was not going to work. And the military are going to have egg on their face. So it's it's just very, very hard, I think, at the moment to picture what the, the dynamics will be. You know, could it be problem you know we saw in in Kazakhstan unexpectedly in January there was a sort of spontaneous revolt when gas prices were doubled so many people run their cars on liquefied petroleum gas there that it just took them beyond the limit there'd been a lot of you know mounting economic hardship now we spoke about the middle classes but the um, the the poorer uh, class in Russia have suffered badly in recent years because you know living standards have fallen uh, the people at the bottom of the pile, you know, just dis- tend disproportionately to to take the pain. Yeah, and these people are going to, you know, feel the the, the sanctions measures. I think very acutely. So you could probably expect there to be, you know, rising levels of uh, anger. Um, I imagine that you know city budgets are going to be under great levels of strain. Public services being cut. You know, the health service. Um, unable to treat as many patients. You can just see all this sort of building up. And it might just be that from below, there is some sort of um, explosion. We know for a fact that um, Putin and his associates have been very worried about you know, what the, his chief opponent, Alexei Navalny, was starting to do uh, in the public and the way his you know, messages about the levels of corruption in the elite were starting to, to get through and attract a huge amount of interest. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the stage is just set for somebody or a group of people to come along and exploit that, you know, sort of rapidly changing public mood. So if you think back to 2014, you know, this triumphant, you know, Crimea is ours, the, the sort of national euphoria that, that accompanied the annexation of Crimea, that's just a distant memory. Yeah. That's been and gone. Um, and maybe that was the absolute high watermark of the, um, of the Putin era, even if by that stage, you know, economic decline had already set in. Um, but the, I, I think the country's future at this point looks uh, extremely bleak.
So let's talk a bit about how the wider world, you know, particularly sort of Western countries, NATO countries should be responding. Um, the possibility now of NATO uh, accepting Ukraine as a member has surely gone up. It was by no means clear that Ukraine was going to be able to join NATO when when this was still a debate happening in January and, and late last year. Whereas now, in the face of extraordinary aggression from Russia, it's easy to see the case, albeit you know there's there's massive complexity around around the risks associated. But perhaps more importantly and more significantly, the EU, uh, which again takes us right back to 2014 and the original trigger event for Putin's intervention at that time, the possibility of Ukraine signing a special partnership with the European Union. So what do you think that Western countries should be doing in the coming months as this situation uh, continues to unfold? I think most importantly, they've got to signal that they're committed to helping to stabilise Ukraine, to support it economically, not just politically and diplomatically. Um, but the you know the, the the country is suffering so badly at the moment, um, and this is not you know just the devastation that's being wreaked on it by Russia, but uh, the economy is basically stopped. Yeah. Um, during the, the, this conflict, and it's going to be very difficult to sort of make up that ground um, quickly. But I think it's going to be able to call on the support of the major players uh, in the EU. In recent days, I think we've seen an absolute sea change of attitudes towards Ukraine in Germany. Country yeah. that previously was curious had a curiously sort of cold approach to dealing with Ukraine, and and that, that's sort of related to its history, and uh, it's as a kind of separate uh, separate question. Yeah. But I think there is a wave of sympathy and respect uh, for Ukraine, Germany now. So I think signaling signaling our intent to help Ukraine take these necessary steps to equip itself to join the European Union at some point, to at least become more interoperable with NATO and to develop a sense of its greater security through interoperability with a real prospect when the moment is right of it joining NATO. But the you know the future of security arrangements is in Europe is going to depend heavily on you know who ends up running Russia and what their priorities are. I think they're going to have uh, like the Ukrainians they're going to have a major task on their hands to rebuild the economy. Mm-hmm. And for for that reason, we'll probably take a you know a different approach to national security. I would hope that there'll be enough Russians in uh, willing and able to learn the lessons of the the last 20 or 30 years and what this determined anti-Western posture has brought about, because this has all been totally unnecessary. Yeah. NATO has never posed the type of threat that Russia, that Putin describes. The, the vision for Ukraine and others of a democratic family of nations that they can join uh, at some point if they do the right things that seems to have been, to my mind, a much more serious threat to Russia's ability to maintain its influence in the region. But to to claim that NATO posed a, a security threat to Russia, that Ukraine drawing closer to NATO was going to undermine, fatally undermine Russia's security was just um, complete nonsense. Yeah. Uh, so 
there has to be some revision of you know that security thinking. And you know, if you think back to the the mid nineteen eighties, and you know Gorbachev's uh, ascent to power, and then you know this revision of Soviet foreign and defense policy, it does happen. And the you know the famous words of Georgi Arbatov, you know, we're going to deprive you of an enemy. Um, they had a real impact on the West at the time. Yeah. Um, so you know, could we see some similar exercise? I don't think it would necessarily happen to the same degree as it did in the 1980s, but it it could nevertheless be something uh, quite radical by today's standards. That radicalism uh, seems appropriate. We need a Russia. You know, Russia's. Oh self-evidently the world's largest country in physically, but also just a very important country economically, culturally, and particularly for, for Europe. So Russia needs to be brought back into the kind of comity of nations, but clearly in a way that is not the Russia that we see at the moment in invading its neighbours. How, how can that be achieved? Because one could argue that that's exactly what people were trying to do after 1991, that they were trying to bring Russia in, bring it into the capitalist system, uh, increase cooperation on on a whole raft of uh, areas. And, you know, stating the blindingly obvious, it didn't work. So how do do we make sure we don't end up there again? Well, that is an excellent question. I I think on our side, we we have to be honest about what we did right in the 90s and what we did wrong. We saw the NATO system as a model for expanding uh, a zone of stability in Europe that, in fact, should include Russia. And I think there was a sincere desire on the part of the NATO member states to to make that happen. Yeah. But it, it takes two to tango. Yeah. And the, the, the tango just didn't happen because the defense establishment in Moscow viewed cooperation with NATO as a process of strengthening NATO which must be by definition to to Russia's disadvantage. Yeah. So this sort of zero sum game thinking, you know, was still prevalent even when Russia was in a much, you know, more weakened state. Yeah. Uh, at the time than it had been in the days of the Soviet Union or indeed, you know, during the height of the Putin years. Yeah. So, you know, how how do we how do we sort of sell this this package? And I think the experience of Ukraine and and how, you know, it's viewed its understanding of what this model is and how it can be expanded. I think that's actually extremely important for Russia to learn from, yeah. personally. Um, but we are going to have to have, you know, a very frank conversation um, with the the new Russian leadership when it when it comes. We're going to have to try to reactivate, you know, some of those mechanisms that we had um, for building cooperation and partnership. The end of the day, you know, what what is is NATO? It's a community of like-minded countries that decide have decided to, you know, work work together to increase everybody's security because that's just a force multiplier in terms of you know, creating that that zone of stability. And to do that, they fashioned these you know extraordinarily deep and complex links between their respective defense establishments. And they they solve problems between themselves through these yep. diplomatic mechanisms. It's a pretty boring process. In fact, if you sit in a NATO committee and you know going around the table trying to build a consensus position, but it's extremely stabilizing. Yeah, now, the Russians were invited into this, but just didn't feel that it was for them uh, because you know you've got to deal with small countries and you've got to let them speak. You have to respect their interests and you have to try to agree with them. 
And it was though they felt this was some sort of humiliation and sort of didn't believe that the process really worked as people said it did. Namely, they they felt that it you know probably worked a bit like the Warsaw Pact, where the you know the you know, big big brother told the the other allies what they were going to do. In other words, he, the U.S. you know just delivered the instructions, and um, all the other NATO member states put up their hands and said, you know, Uncle Sam, I agree. Yeah, um, the communique was you know was adopted. So you know there has to be some some cultural change on on the Russian side to to get to that point, and that that's going to take a very long time because we will have been through a period of extreme confrontation. And the, I wouldn't doubt the impact of this state propaganda on people's minds in Russia. I, I note, noticed that among some of my you know, old friends and contacts in, in Russia. I'm just amazed that even though they understand that it's so often you know, there to mislead them and they kind of insulate themselves against it, yeah. still part of the message gets through and you know ends up warping their their thinking so we are going to have a great great difficulty in establishing i, I think a just a common language um, but we have to look back to some of the things that we did well with the russians through you know cooperation in the 90s and i note in particular uh, and i may have talked about this to you with you before the 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 level of cooperation that was achieved in bosnia after the signing of the the dayton peace accords where we integrated a, a Russian brigade into a NATO peacekeeping operation, the Russians had their separate line of command, but effectively, you know, they were part of a NATO um, operation. They deployed extremely uh, professional um, you know, senior commanders. Uh, there was a high degree of mutual respect, and it worked. Uh, I think it functioned very well until yeah. these 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 uh, senior military professionals went back to Moscow and found their careers had been ended. So, you know, that that's process of trying to spread the culture of cooperation through this mechanism was um, just neutralized, you know, at the outset. It was just dead in the water. We, we just have to hope that there's going to be a great, greater willingness on the, the Russian side to recognize that this sort of NATO model of security is not what they grew up thinking it to be. And that at the end of the day, they have to balance the relationship with China. Yes. Russia cannot manage the relationship with China on its own. A weakened junior partner of China, I don't think it's a very good destiny for, for Russia. So, um, yeah, there are no shortage of rational people in Moscow who understand these things and recognize that change is needed. <clears throat> but whether culturally and institutionally they can develop the, the approaches that will make that change possible in, in cooperation with Western countries. I think that's very much open to question. But we have to help the Russians along the way. I think we're going to have to be understanding of what they've uh, been through and show probably a, a higher level of sensitivity than we did in the, in the 1990s. We were in a bit of a hurry. We didn't fully appreciate the processes that were under, underway in Russia at the time after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, yep. the, the gr- degree of impoverishment in the country, the sense of humiliation, even if you know, it wasn't as advertised as defeat in, in the Cold War, it certainly felt like that yep. to the, uh, the military establishment. We didn't, for example, I think, fully respect the effort that the Russian armed forces made to get their forces out of uh, Germany, for example, of the United Germany, ahead of schedule. And I remember one Russian military officer saying to me, uh, we did all this, we got our forces back, you know, ahead of schedule. 
and we didn't get a word of thanks. Yeah. Um, so you know we have to we have to be sensitive. Yeah. Um, so I do worry a bit that we don't have on our side, you know, enough uh, Russia expertise to just understand the scale of the the, the problem in, in 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 trying to coax Russia, you know, into a more productive relationship and respecting that it's going to have to carry out some very, very serious reforms at the time, which may consume, you know, energy that, that we would otherwise like to see deployed to, you know, security and defense issues. Yeah. Well, I think that point that you, you've made there about a need for expertise is perhaps a, a, a good point to kind of draw this to a close. Uh, you yourself, John, have, of course, uh, committed much of your professional life to the understanding and expertise of Russia. And I want to thank you for sharing it with us this evening. It's been a pleasure, Arthur. Thanks very much. My thanks to John Luff for joining us at such a busy time. And thank you to the listener. If you're finding these special Ukraine episodes helpful, please consider backing us on Patreon and spread the word to those who you think might be interested. 